0: summer of 1976, tragedy struck in the 35-mile-long mountain-rimmed canyon linking Estes Park and Loveland, Colorado. On July 31st of that year, after severe thunderstorms furiously rocked the area, a 19-foot, now imagine this, a 19-foot wall of water of tidal wave proportions ripped through the valley, sweeping away the lives of 129 people. The deaths were devastating and tragic, yet for some reason they were likely, a lot of them, unnecessary as can be observed from the account given by the wife of one of the victims. The husband's true name has been changed to protect the identity of the family. But Gary was an engineer, and to his trained eye, the narrowness of the canyon and the rapidly rising river spelled trouble with a capital T. Anyhow, he came over to tell me that he was going to our friend's cabin to warn them and the people in the cabins across the way to leave at once for higher ground. And although I asked to go with him, Gary insisted that I stay at the hotel. He said that he would be back for me, but if he didn't return in 30 minutes, I was to climb to the top of the mountain without him and he'd catch up with me there. And he told the hotel owner and his wife where we were staying, to be sure to get their two youngsters, an 11-year-old boy and an 8-year-old girl, out of bed and dressed right away. Then Gary drove off in such a hurry that he forgot to kiss me goodbye, and I have no last kiss to remember. In exactly 30 minutes, I followed Gary's instructions and started to climb up the rough, rocky side of the mountain. In the canyon below, now filled with water, I saw the tops of cars bob by can imagine that. Even a Greyhound bus swept past. I saw the hotel where we were to meet our friends break apart and float away and I wondered if the hotel owner and his wife and their children were safe. All four, I later learned, actually perished in the flood. But the warning of disaster and death was very clear. The offer of an available salvation understood the rejection tragic. In retrospect, we can all see the foolishness of those who rejected Gary's warning, but can we see the foolishness of rejecting the Bible's warning about what will happen to those who do not accept God's offer of salvation? Throughout our lives, there are rewards and there are regrets, and that is as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the physical realm. The truth of Jesus' offer of salvation is His offer of a changed life, a forgiven past, a protected present, as well as a promising future is continually made available to us. He beckons us to safety and to the security of life in Him, to the refuge of discipleship. And He calls us out of the canyon of fear and onto the rock of salvation. Now, how each of us responds to that invitation to follow him determines whether or not we will experience regrets or rewards. Someone once commented that if you tear a beautiful hymn out of a hymnal, which not many people use those anymore, but if you tore a hymn, a page of a hymn out of a hymnal and throw it down on the sidewalk, you can expect a variety of reactions from those who might happen upon it, right? For example, a dog would probably stop, take a sniff at it, and then continue on his way. A street cleaner would likely pick it up and throw it in the trash. Just another piece of litter in the road. Someone driven by greed might pick it up expecting to find some sort of valuable document. An English teacher may possibly take the time to read it and admire its literary quality. But a spiritually-minded believer who picked it up and read it would have his soul blessed. His spirit lifted and his heart stirred to worship. Now, the content of the torn-out hymn is exactly the same for each one who comes in contact with it, right? But its meaning, its value, its reward is only understood by the person receptive to its truth. That's exactly the point that Jesus makes as he concludes his instructions to his would-be followers in Matthew chapter 10. The fact is the rewards of discipleship are found in the personal reception of the truth. So how you receive what the truth says is going to determine the rewards of discipleship for you. Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 40 to 42. Jesus says, he who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward talk about enigmatic verses of scripture right what do you make of that at the end of all of this stuff that we've been through in matthew chapter ten so far jesus description of discipleship of what discipleship in the real world would be like as they stepped out to follow him has been fairly sober, wouldn't you say? A lot of sober stuff we've looked at in Matthew chapter 10. He's spoken candidly about the criteria of discipleship, the adverse conditions involved in it, the contention, the controversy, and the commitment involved in becoming his follower. He's laid out the extreme cost that every one of his disciples must consider before becoming his follower, before signing on to the high cost. And that cost is a cross. But now, in an uncharacteristic conclusion, Jesus leaves his learners with words of empowering encouragement, words that, like a piece of paper left on the sidewalk, can be taken with a grain of salt, dismissed, or received as a gift of God. William Barclay sees in this short passage four links in the chain of salvation. Link number one says that there is a God out of whose love the whole process of salvation began. Link number two, there is Jesus who brought that message to us. Number three, there are human messengers, prophets who speak, godly followers who are examples in the world, disciples who learn, who have received the truth, and then in turn pass it on to others. And then number four, there are believers who welcome God's men and women and God's message and who are rewarded themselves. In this passage, there's encouragement For every single disciple of Christ, no matter how simple your service, no matter how insignificant it may seem, it will be rewarded by God according to these verses. We will not all be prophets. We may not all stand out in the world as high-profile Christ followers. We may not become celebrated for a great faith or costly commitment or martyrdom for the faith. We may not even experience family controversy as we live out our faith, but as we continually receive the truth of Jesus Christ and remain unashamed to be associated with him and with his followers, there will be no regrets, only rewards, Jesus says. Let's look at the first thing that we see here the rewards of discipleship are initiated through spiritual identification with the truth. Spiritual identification with the truth. Look at verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Read that verse slowly and carefully. And then read it again. And then read it again and read it again. This is the way that you meditate on Scripture by turning it over in your mind and in your heart, meditating on it, concentrating on it, focusing on it. I would almost recommend that you repeat it over and over and over again all throughout this week and try to assimilate what it implies. He who receives you, receives me. Now, if you're a believer, those words carry some heavy weight responsibility. He who receives you, receives me. That simple verse has some heavy implications about who we are and how we are perceived by others. And even how we should view ourselves, doesn't it? This verse means that We are his ambassadors, we are his representatives. As Christians, we seriously need to accept the fact that whenever people come in contact with us, we are bringing them in contact with Christ. I say that again, as a Christian, whenever people come in contact with us, they are coming in contact with Christ and not only Christ but what else does it say here God the Father as well I'll talk about heavy heavy weight responsibility Should that change the way we live or talk or act or? Does that scare anyone else besides me Why be scared Why be scared because it's a powerful statement of our responsibility. Our responsibility, as I thought about that intense truth, it really hit me quite hard. It means that every time I speak to someone, not just up here, when I have a conversation with someone who doesn't know Christ, they are evaluating Jesus on the basis of what I say. What I say, what I do, how I react to various circumstances in life speaks volumes to the world about Jesus and his truth. I remember one time, this just came to mind, just, just now, this second, I was out back there and I was picking up some microphone stands in the back room and one of them was loose and the microphone was on it and it slammed down on my thumb and you, you know how you pinch, you get a blood blister, oh man, did it hurt. And I just, I just went, oh, like that. And Mike Godding, I don't know if you remember Mike Godding, he's passed on now to be with the Lord. He was standing back here and he saw the whole thing happen. He heard the whole thing happen. He comes up to me later and he says, I can't believe it. You didn't even swear. You didn't even even scream. You didn't even complain. (laughs) Now how in the world would we have known, right, would I have known that he was right in the back room? Just a little thing like that. We are either building that image of Jesus up in their minds, people's minds, or we're tearing it down, right? That's a simple illustration. But how many other more serious things do we encounter on a daily basis? We're either presenting them with an authentic picture of who Jesus really is, or we're botching it up. Jesus says, he who receives you receives me. It's a powerful statement of responsibility. It's also a powerful statement of our identity. Now, don't misread the idea we're not Christ, okay? Get that right out of your mind. We're not perfect, but as his followers, we need to realize that we could be the most tangible, touchable, and observable evidence of Christ that some people will ever see on this earth. Do you realize that? That thought's not meant to arouse arrogance in people. It's to awaken us to humility. If we're Jesus' representatives, if we're his ambassadors, then we should be aware of the fact that every waking moment of every single day, someone is either led closer to Jesus or further away from him simply by our example. Having said all of that, we must realize that Jesus' words are also a powerful statement of unity or solidarity with Jesus. In the Mishnah, an ancient collection of Jewish traditions, it is written, a man's messenger is as himself. In other words, in the Jewish mind, to honor a person's representative was to honor the person himself. This is the Jewish concept of Shalia, which regards the king's emissary as if he were the king. Jesus confers upon the disciples that same encouraging thought. He confers that upon us. Christ and his Father are so united with true believers, you and me, if you're in Christ, that Jesus said, those who welcome and receive my true disciples and the message I sent them to preach, simply because they are my disciples, are really welcoming and receiving me. But it goes further than that. They receive and align themselves with him who sent me as well, Jesus says. My father who's in heaven. And the reverse is equally true. Luke chapter 10 and verse 16 says this. Jesus says, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So we must remember that the greater context of this passage, as we have seen over the last few weeks, is very high risk, okay? It's a spiritual war zone. Welcoming a disciple of Christ invites the possibility of persecution for some people. A a sort of guilt by association, right? Guilt by association. Just let me show you that in Acts chapter 17, for example. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. This is a small little example. Now, when they had traveled through to Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. and Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. In attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Who's Jason anyway? Right? Guilty by association, that's who. Jason received the disciples and he got the brunt of it. Ezekiel chapter 3 in the Old Testament in verse 7 says, But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. This is God speaking to to Ezekiel. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. They're thick-headed. And they've got a stubborn heart. And they're not going to listen to you because they don't listen to me. See the solidarity there? Jesus continually emphasizes the unity between he and the Father. And I've met people who think that they're saved because they believe in God, but they will not accept the fact that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Let me say this about that. The Bible is very clear. You cannot truly have a personal relationship with the true God and not believe in Jesus Christ. It's impossible because the two are inseparable. To know God the Father is to believe in God the Son. Let me say that again. To know God the Father is to believe in God the Son. Let me just take an aside to show you some of this. If you're taking notes on this, if this is a thing that you need to get in your head, I'm going to show you in the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 8, verse 19. These are good verses to know. Have in your arsenal if somebody comes and asks you a question about if someone can know God the Father and not accept Jesus the Son. John chapter 8, verse 19, So they were saying to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. See that? Verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Skip over to chapter 10 and verse 30. Very simple verse. I and the Father are one. Note that. John chapter 12, verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. See that? John chapter 13 and verse 20. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And just a couple more in chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, the unity between Jesus and the Father and his disciples is absolutely unbreakable, inseparable. That's encouragement isn't it that's hope if I ever heard about hope that means we have security that means that Romans eight is very true right nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord nothing its encouragement for us to represent him more confidently and with more sincerity we can preach Christ to the world knowing that there will be those who will respond positively And it's an incredible joy to know that we are part of that salvation process, that Jesus has included us in that, given us the privilege to be part of that. There is no greater privilege in life than to know that we can be an instrumental part in bringing people into a right relationship with God Almighty. You want to give somebody a Christmas present this year? Go and give them Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 18 through 20 says this, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's one of the greatest rewards of discipleship in the real world. The rewards of discipleship are initiated through our spiritual identification with the Father and the Son. And secondly, Jesus points out in these verses in Matthew 10 that the rewards of discipleship are honored through personal associations with the truth. That's in verse 41. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now when Jesus uses the term receives regarding the welcoming of his representatives, he's not just speaking of receiving them as a house guest, okay? He's implying that they are being welcomed specifically because they are messengers of Christ. In the name of can be rendered because he is. Okay? So you could read it like this. He who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man, because he's a righteous man, shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now, how are you going to be a prophet? How are you going to be a righteous man unless you're associated with Jesus Christ? Okay? In other words, Jesus is saying that whoever welcomes, approves of, and embraces one of his disciples, a prophet or a righteous person who is going about his or her mission because of who they are in Christ and what they stand for, will receive the same reward as is promised to the one that that person welcomes. Well, that's pretty powerful for the person doing the receiving, isn't it? As I said earlier, not everyone is going to be a prophet in the sense of, like we think of prophets, have the gift of prophecy or be a teacher of the, of the law or of the word, in that sense. Not everyone will be a prophet in that sense. Now, a prophet in Scripture is one who was divinely commissioned and empowered to proclaim and reveal God's truth to others. It's not just, a prophet is not just someone who foretells coming events, okay? He foretells the truth of God's word. But more specifically, a prophet speaks forth God's revealed truth. So in a general sense, all Christians are prophets because they proclaim the word of God in the gospel, but in the narrow sense, there are those whom God has called uniquely to the ministry of revealing God's specific word to people, and they're called prophets, Uh, Brendan Manning has said that, quote, in speaking, the prophet reveals God through his words, the invisible God becomes audible. I like that. The prophet's task, he says, is to bring the world into divine focus. Now, many preachers and pastors and ministry leaders need to keep this in mind. I need to keep this in mind all the time. I need to be reminded of that frequently. In my old office, which used to be up in that balcony, before that balcony was there, I'm dating myself now, right by my desk, I had posted the words of A.W. Tozer. I love these words. This is what they say. He said, save me from the curse that lies dark across the face of modern clergy. The curse of compromise, of imitation, of professionalism. Save me from the error of judging a church by its size, its popularity, or the amount of its yearly offering. Help me to remember that I am a prophet, not a promoter, not a religious manager, but a prophet. I could give one piece of advice to you, Chris Blanche, <laughs> live by those words, live by those words. Jesus said that a person who receives one of Christ's spokespersons, spokesmen or women simply because he or she is a spokesperson for Christ shares the same reward, the same reward. The same is said of a person who aligns himself with a righteous man or woman who is representing the truth of Christ. There are two things I want you to notice here. First, notice that the motivation for this hospitality is spiritual. It's spiritual. It's shown specifically because that person is or in the name of a prophet and a righteous man. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' encouragement here is simply that although we cannot all be prophets and full-time missionaries or teachers or ministers of high public visibility, it doesn't matter. Jesus is saying here that he who supports and shows the simple gift of hospitality to God's messengers will receive no less a reward than the prophet or the missionary or the minister himself. That was very important back in those days. Jesus said that he who helps a godly man or a godly woman to be godly receives a godly man's reward. That is so important to understand. It's why we support people who do the work of ministry in so many different ways. So what are these rewards that Jesus is speaking about? What is a prophet's reward? What is a righteous man's reward? Now, I know some of you are thinking about that, and you sit poised and ready for me to answer it. Those are incredibly good questions. Great questions. Unfortunately, I have incredibly vague answers. Okay? The Scripture speaks of many rewards that are promised to believers, and often they're spoken of as crowns, like for instance in James chapter 1, verse 12, the crown of life. And the, and the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, and the crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. And there's many of them listed in scriptures. But of rewards specifically designated to prophets and to righteous men and women, there is really nothing specific in scripture about that. However, there are blessings and rewards experienced on this earth promised by Christ for those who are truly committed to following him. Here's one example. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and uh, beginning in verse 28. And I've experienced this. And I'm sure many of you have as well. Mark 10, verse 28. This is right after Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. And he tells the rich young ruler, you know, well, if you've done all of these things, and just sell all your possessions, give them away to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler went away grieved. okay. Peter began to say to him in verse 28, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much. Now in the present age, notice that, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, don't leave that out, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. You see, I believe the greatest and most meaningful rewards, however, will not be experienced until we receive them from Christ in heaven. Amen? Amen tell you a little story about Henry C. Morrison. He was a, a faithful missionary who served the Lord in Africa for over 40 years. He recalls that emotional day when he and his wife boarded a ship on their way back to the United States, and his mind flooded with the memories of the wonderful experience he had enjoyed on the mission field. He began wondering what it would be like to return to his Midwestern hometown. He, think, he, he thought to himself, "Will anyone there still remember us? And aboard that same ship that day with Henry and his wife was the president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt. He was returning from a big game hunting trip in Africa. When the ship pulled into New York Harbor, there were thousands of people, thousands of people there to greet the arriving president. The crowds were cheering, and the bands were playing. There were signs, and there were banners, and there were billboards everywhere saying, welcome home, welcome home to the president. And the dejected missionary and his wife with their luggage in hand quietly made their way to the deck of the ship to exit. Not a single person had come to welcome them. There were no bands playing. There were no banners flying in their honor. And Henry Morrison went to his hotel room with a rather heavy heart. And as he sat there on the bed, he asked his wife, he said, honey, for 40 years we poured out our lives into ministry and service. And yet we come back to America and not a single soul comes to welcome us home. And his wife sat down next to him and said, Henry, you need to remember, we're not home yet. See, the time will come one day when we are home and the rewards of discipleship will be received by all from the least of Christ's servants to the greatest. Amen? Amen. Revelation chapter 11, verses 16 and 18 in the Living Bible goes like this. And the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God threw themselves down in worship saying, we give thanks Lord God Almighty who is and was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were angry with you, but now it is your turn to be angry with them. It is time to judge the dead. Now watch this. And reward your servants, prophets, and people alike. All who fear your name, both small and great, and to destroy those who have caused destruction upon the earth. That's when the rewards will come. The bottom line is simply the fact that the smallest service, now watch this, the smallest service performed to aid the most insignificant of Christ's servants shall never go unnoticed or unrewarded by the Lord. Amen? And that is the encouraging thought with which Jesus leaves his disciples before he releases them in this text and us to fulfill the mission that he's given us. Not only are the rewards of discipleship initiated through spiritual identification with Christ and the Father, not only are they honored through personal associations with his servants, but finally, the rewards of discipleship are manifested through practical participation in that truth. Look at verse 42, Matthew chapter 10, last verse of this section. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. As William Barclay has noted, he said the great beauty of this passage is its stress on simple things. Minimalist, right? Simplicity. That is Jesus' way. Simple, direct, and convicting. Even the most insignificant gestures done in the name of Christ carry the guarantee that Jesus will notice them. Okay? It's so unlike the world, isn't it? So unlike the world. That gives every one of us hope, doesn't it? That should move us to, to never shrink back from performing even the most minuscule, unnoticed service for the kingdom of God, shouldn't it? You ever notice that Jesus constantly zeroed in on the small things, the almost insignificant things that are done out of true faith, and he used them to point out what authentic discipleship was really about? For instance, the widow's mite, or a cup of cold water here in this text, or a foot washing with tears, or an invitation to a stranger. Or a visit to the sick in Matthew 24, I mean 25. A visit to a prisoner. I mean, we tend to think that the rewards are going to go to only to the most uh, recognizable names in Christendom, the celebrities. No way. That's not Jesus' way. They're also going to go to all those on their teams, who supported them and encouraged them and freed them up to do the work that God has called them to. They're gonna go to those of you who are serving Christ just as well. Don't ever think that what you do for Christ is insignificant. Don't ever think that. Let me say it this way. Remember this one. Service for God does not escape the notice of God, okay? Again, verse 42, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. The term little ones here refers to Christ's beloved disciples. It's a term of endearment. They may be new believers struggling as they learn to walk a new way, or mature followers who have never attracted attention to themselves at all in their faithful life of service. They may be believers who are never noticed and seem almost unimportant to everybody around them, or they may even feel that they're unimportant to themselves. What Jesus is really saying here is that every act of service to every servant of Christ is an act of service to Christ himself. Okay? And in no way will their reward be lost. No disciple is insignificant. And no service is unimportant in the kingdom. In fact, it is my belief that many of the things for which we will be rewarded will be the things that we don't even remember doing ourselves. We don't even remember them. Or we don't even realize that we're doing them. It's like in Matthew 25 when when Jesus you know, judge the sheep and the goats, says, when did we see you, Lord? When did we see you to visit you? When did we visit you? When did we clothe you? When did we feed you? And Jesus said, whenever you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. They didn't even know that we, they were doing it. True disciples of Jesus seem almost to be unconscious of the fact that their good works are actually for Christ. I believe we will all be surprised one day I think so. The things we thought we would be rewarded for will burn up, right? And the things we did inadvertently, simply out of love for Jesus, will become our greatest heavenly treasures. Matthew 10 again, verse 40 and 42. Let me read the text again, out of the New Living Translation. Anyone who welcomes you is welcoming me. Anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. If you welcome a prophet as one who speaks for God, you will receive the same reward a prophet gets. And if you welcome good and godly people because of their godliness, you will be given a reward like theirs. Notice that. A reward like theirs. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. In his writings on Matthew's Gospel, commentator William Barclay told a story by HLG to which I can personally relate regarding Jesus' words here. He said there was a lad in a country village who, after a great struggle, reached the ministry, and his helper in his days of study had been the village cobbler. The cobbler, like so many of his trade, was a man of wide reading and far thinking, and he had done much for the lad. In due time, the lad was licensed to preach. And on that day, the cobbler said to him, quote, It was always my desire to be a minister of the gospel, but the circumstances of my life made it nearly impossible. But you are achieving what was closed to me. And I want you to promise me one thing. I want you to let me make and cobble your shoes for nothing, for free. And I want you to wear them in the pulpit every time you preach. And then I'll feel you're preaching the gospel I always wanted to preach, standing on my shoes, unquote. Beyond a doubt, the cobbler was serving God as the preacher was. And his reward would one day be the same. Now, I gotta tell you, I have been blessed by the same type of people throughout my ministry. When I was going to Bible college, I had a dentist who never charged me for a single visit all through my four years of Bible college and then on into the ministry here. Praise the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord. A wonderfully elderly couple who constantly sent my wife and I gifts and encouraging notes in the mail, We've been blessed by the person or family who regularly left a bucket of pennies and change in our mailbox anonymously when we were going to Bible school. By the donor who recently, even to this day, left an unsigned card on my desk containing enough cash to purchase a needed piece of winter equipment for our new home. I could go on forever, endlessly. There have been many of you that have, been, that have blessed us that way. God is going to reward all of you as if you were standing here preaching yourselves the gospel, because you are. The fact of the matter is, and I know that some of you have experienced those same types of blessings. Many of you have been part of it. All of us need to know Again, that no service rendered to Christ's servants goes unnoticed by Jesus because it's honor rendered to him. Again, I'll repeat it. So, wrap it up with this. My encouragement to you and to myself. Send that note to that Christian brother or sister who, who's doing ministry that needs the encouragement. Give that cup of refreshing encouragement to your children's nursery attendant. Render support to the missionaries on the field. Realize that others will show you hospitality at times just because you are a servant of Christ. Discipleship in the real world is not only about the upfront and vocal servants, but also about the outback and quiet servants who equally manifest Christ and perhaps even more so. One man put it this way, when true greatness is measured up in the sight of God, it will be seen again and again that the man who greatly moved the world was entirely dependent on someone who, as far as the world is concerned, remained unknown. You all know the name Billy Graham. how many of the names of the people, the hundreds and the thousands of people that supported that guy to let him do what he did and put him where he was that that remain nameless to you, they're going to receive that reward, the same reward as he did. I read something that was once found tacked to a bulletin board. Not Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but there it was. This life is a test. It is only a test. Had it been an actual life, you would have received further instructions on where to go and what to do. Now, that's really dated because some of you had never heard that thing be said on the radio or on TV, right? But we have received instructions on where to go and what to do, right? See, we've received... Life in Christ. Life in Christ is not a test. It is real. It's real. My friends, discipleship happens in a real world, with real conditions, with real contention, with real considerations, with real consequences. And one day it will come to a real conclusion. And when it does, it is my deepest prayer that each of you hear these words of Jesus Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. The three in one of reminding us of the truths that one day, Lord God, we will be rewarded for serving you and even in the most insignificant fashion. But it's not about the rewards to us. It's about our solidarity with you because when we see you face to face, we're just going to throw those rewards right back at you. In humble adoration and worship, we will cast our crowns before you. Father, help us to be encouraged every single day in these days ahead, until you return, or until you take us home. That no small act of kindness in the name of Jesus goes unnoticed. May that propel us, Lord God, to represent you well, knowing that those who receive us receive you. May we lead people closer to Jesus and not further away. We pray in his name, amen.